Now, your weekly dose of inspiration, inspiration. Perspiration. perspiration, and just the right amount of bull defecation. <laughs> the Get You Some Radio Show, with your host, the Vice President of Making Shit Happen, Terry Lancaster. What up, yo? Welcome to the Get You Some Radio Show. I'm your host, Terry Lancaster. How you living? Good to see you. Hey, got a great show for you today. We're going to join Bryn Tillman. Bryn is the author of the LinkedIn Sales Playbook, A Tactical Guide to Social Selling. Now, you're probably on LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn. Most everybody's on LinkedIn. But a lot of people who are talking about using LinkedIn, they use LinkedIn. They look at it as either A, a resume, B, a lead generation tool, or C, they look at it for building their brand. Bryn doesn't do any of those things. Bryn is a big game hunter. And today, Bryn is going to talk about picking your prey and then attracting, teaching, and engaging them all using LinkedIn. We'll be back with Bryn in just a minute. But first, big shout out to the Get You Some Radio subscriber of the week, Lazelle Landino. Lazelle wins a copy of The Better Self-Help for the Rest of Us. This is my, uh, my book, so I'm going to be sending that out to Lazelle and you too. You too can be a lucky winner of the Get You Some Subscriber of the Week. All you have to do is go to terrylancaster.tv. You can see it over there. terrylancaster.tv, and there'll be a big red button right up above my head. Click that button, subscribe. You can't win if you don't play, and you can't be Subscriber of the Week unless you are a subscriber. So head over there and take care of that, and I'm going to take care of this. Man, today is a big day in Nashville. I'm recording this on Wednesday. Wednesday and the, uh, the Nashville Predators are about to go into game two of the championship round of the Stanley Cup Finals in the NHL. They're, uh, they're playing the Pittsburgh Pirates, and tonight is game two. And I've been growing the playoff beard now. I know it doesn't look like it, <laughs> but this is about, about six, maybe eight weeks worth of beard growth. It's probably the big, It's definitely the biggest beard I've ever had in my life. I had a little goatee sometimes before, but I usually kept it trimmed. And I never had all this going on out here. And it's itching and it's, it's, it's aggravating me and it's driving me to death. But I'm in it, baby. I am for the team. I'm a team player. So I can't shave until the Predators take the cup. So we're going into game two tonight. We'll see if we can't make that happen. Had a big week around the Lancaster household, too. Uh, we, I talked a couple weeks ago about my daughter graduating from the University of Tennessee. That's one of my older daughters, one of my older twins. I still got one at the University of Tennessee. Got another one who's going to be enrolling at the University of Tennessee in August because she just, this week, my youngest daughter, my baby, graduated from high school. 18 years old, she's ready to fly, fly the coop. Now, I, uh, my daughter's graduated from Brentwood High School here in Brentwood, Tennessee. If you don't know much about Nashville, Brentwood is, a, uh, it is kind of an affluent uh, enclave just outside of Nashville and I, uh, I always worried a little bit about raising my daughters in in this in, in this area it's like Disneyland for Republicans seriously it, everybody kind of looks the same and where I went to school everyone didn't look the same I grew up in Nashville literally on the other side of the river in the 70s there were a lot of black faces a lot of white faces and there were a lot of fighting between the black faces and the white faces. This is when all the, the busing and everything was going on. So I, I, I saw literal race riots when I, when I was uh, growing up on the, other side of the, on the other side of the river in Nashville. My daughters never had to face anything like that because there weren't a lot of faces 
that didn't look like theirs. Well, kind of. There weren't a lot of faces that, that, that I had to see. They didn't have the diversity that I had. And so I worried about them growing up and not being able to deal with people who didn't come from an affluent background, who didn't look like them, who didn't come from a high school where everyone, this high school, I sat through my daughter's graduation. There were 422 kids. The average ACT for these kids was 27. They scored a 27 on, on the ACT. Between the 420 of them, they were awarded $33 million in scholarships. They had an average GPA of about 3.6 on a, on a five-point scale. They, these kids were phenomenally successful, and they come from phenomenally successful families. And we were sitting there at graduation, and they were going through and they're reading the names. And I say that my children didn't have the opportunity to see the diversity that I, I, I saw, but they had a different kind of diversity because we were going through and there were lots of names that didn't sound like mine. There were, you know, there were a few Lancasters here and there. There are a few Smith and Jones, but there were lots of names with a lot of consonants and a lot of syllables and, uh, you know, immigrant names. And my mother sitting with me, and this was kind of, uh, this was kind of a, an epiphany for her as well. And she's sitting there and she's, she's watching, gradu watching graduation. She leans over and she, she asks me, are, these, are there a lot of foreign exchange students? No, as far as I know, there aren't any foreign exchange students right now. Every once in a while, they, they have some. But mostly, these, these are people who live here in Brentwood. And she did not realize that there were that many immigrants living in Brentwood in this affluent area. And she said, well, how, how, how does everyone afford? How do they afford to live in Brentwood? Because she's... Under the, she was under the misconception, because the, the Donald Trump misconception that an immigrant is someone who swam across, swam across the river and is here to, uh, to work for $5 an hour pick, picking apples or something like that. And I think we forget the people, the, those of us who live here, those of us who, who, who see America on a first-hand basis every day, that this is such a land of opportunity, that people do come here and can be phenomenally successful. And they all come here for the same reasons, whether they, whether they swam across the river and they're picking apples for $5 an hour, or they own a chain of grocery stores or a chain of pharmacies, or they're doctors, lawyers, and Indian chiefs. My daughter's got a chance to grow up with the sons and daughters of doctors and lawyers and Indian chiefs. And, and uh, even the, uh, the color commentator from, from the Nashville Predators, he was, his daughter was graduating at the same time as mine. But they all came here for that opportunity to make something better of themselves. And I thought that's how we had the immigrant population in Brentwood, mostly an Asian population. They came here and they started a business and they worked their asses off and they made a success of themselves and they were able to afford to live in a place like this. So we forget that America is the land of opportunity. So don't let these opportunities go to waste. I'm so glad my daughter's got a chance to grow up where they did so that they can see firsthand the benefits of hard work. And also firsthand that uh, they, they, they grew up with doctors and lawyers and Indian chiefs and sometimes the, the sons and daughters of country music royalty and the, the grand, grandchildren of, of country music royalty. And they got a chance to see real live, honest to goodness rich people, not, not just you know, slightly above average rich people, you know, high income people. They got to be real live, honest to goodness, famous people. And they saw that they're just like you and I. They just work hard. They wake up every day, put on their pants, pants one leg at a time, and they go out and they get stuff done because that's what opportunity is all about, taking advantage of the opportunities that you have and making stuff happen. Had another kind of epiphany from the, from the graduation too. 
I said, we, I, here, here in Brentwood, and this is an affluent area, and these students are enormously successful, and they all work hard. They're, they're going to colleges in, in three different countries and 50 different states, and I got, you know, we get kids going to Brown University and kids going to Notre Dame. I'm not sure there's anyone going to Harvard or Yale last year, this year, but there always is, and there's kids going to Vanderbilt, kids going to huge schools, and they're enormously successful. And I look at this, and I compare it to the average student across the United States. First of all, the average student you know, is not doing this well and not having the opportunity to, to achieve this kind of education. But the, I, I, I've tried to figure out why it is that that happened. Why are these kids so successful? And it's not necessarily because of the money, because Brentwood High School doesn't have any more resources than any other public school. I mean, it's actually got uh, quite some, somewhat less. There's, there's inner city schools deep in Nashville that have much better computer systems and much better programs and they get more money thrown at them and Brentwood just kind of struggles through and it's not the resources and the money that's being thrown at these students because honestly Brentwood High School is kind of a dump. <laughs> it, it really is. It's small. Everyone's cram packed. There's, there's nowhere to park. Uh, the, 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 the technology is not that spectacular. There are a lot of schools that have much greater technology and resources than Brentwood High School does, but still it's one of the top two or three high. It's, it's the top, non-magnet public high school in the state of Tennessee. And it's not because of the money. So if it's not because of the money, it's gotta be because of the teachers, right? Well, you know, Brentwood High School has got some good teachers. It's probably got some great teachers, but there are also some mediocre teachers. There's some teachers who are, who are just tr struggling through to, to, to get to, to, get to re retirement. You know, just like everyone else, they've, re they've reached, they've done what they wanna do and they're just, they're just riding it out. So there are, good teachers, there are bad teachers, and it's just like everywhere else. It's not that we have any more money, and it's not that we have any better teachers. So why are all of these kids so enormously successful? And over the last eight years that I've had kids in Brentwood High School, I've come to the conclusion that it's not the money, and it's not the resources, it's the network. It's the parents. It's all the parents who are enormously successful in their own right, and they push their children to strive and study and work hard, and they, they help them. They read to them at night. They help them with their homework. They send them to band camp. They, send, they, they do these things for them to help push them along because they are expected to succeed. The, you know, expectations of success. And the kids look around, and all of their friends are going to Vanderbilt and Brown and Harvard and Notre Dame. So it's expected that they will go to some college, Brown, Harvard, and Notre Dame. 70 kids, 67 kids out of 420 are going to the University of Tennessee, which is kind of hard to get into these days. Everyone can't get in to the University of Tennessee. And so it's not, it's not the money and the resources that's driving these, these children to be successful. It's the network. And the old Jim Rohn quote is, you are the average of the five people that you hang around with. So... I'm so excited, I'm so honored, I'm so grateful that I had a chance to send my kids to be in the network of this community so that they could see firsthand what success looks like in America and they can compare themselves to doctors and lawyers and Indian chiefs and that's the only life they know now and that's where their mindset is. That's what their network is, that's what their track is on. So be cognizant of who you're around and be more cognizant of who you're sending your children around and make sure that their expectations for success are on the same level that your expectations are because 
you know, if you, if you, if you take, if you take the easy road and, and you're hang, you're hanging around, you know, you're, you're hanging around less than successful folks, then that's what they're going to see. And that's how they're going to model their life. We all model our lives based on what we see. And you know, your network is your net worth. We're going to be back in just a minute with Bryn Tillman talking about how to build your network on LinkedIn right after this. You never get a second chance to make a first impression. And first impressions these days happen mostly on Google or social media. If you're invisible online, well, that's not much of an impression. But without free five-day personal branding bootcamp, you can transform your online image, create a bigger referral network, and stop being invisible in just one week. To get started, simply text Terry to 444-999. Get you some radio. Hey there, welcome to the Get You Some Radio Studio. I'm Terry Lancaster, and today's guest is Bryn Tillman. Now, Bryn is a social selling strategist, a trainer, a consultant, and a speaker, and an author. She has a new book out called The LinkedIn Sales Playbook. She's going to be talking about that. Bryn, how are you doing today? I'm good, Terry. How are you? Oh, I am I'm fantastic. It's a beautiful day in Nashville, Tennessee. The sun is shining. The birds are chirping. I could not be better. Awesome. It's beautiful in Philadelphia. It's always sunny in Philadelphia. Oh, I've heard that. Hey, so, so tell us about Bren. How, did, how does one get to be a social selling strategist? Where, how did you get here? Accidentally. Accidentally. Yeah. So I've been in sales as a producer and a sales trainer for a very long time. Uh, and when I found LinkedIn, and I actually called it LinkedIn for like months because I didn't <laughs> even know what it was, in 2008, I saw the magic behind it from a sales perspective. And as a sales trainer, I started to teach it sort of as a loss leader, like to get people in because they were curious about this new thing. And I got really good at it and I really fell in love with it. And it's because I took it from the sales trainer's perspective, not the social media perspective, that I kind of differentiated in how I taught it and mm -hmm. how uh, I, I really started to represent it. And after a couple of years, I went to my, my partner who, in the sales training company and I said, I think this is all I want to do. Yeah. And she said, not me. <laughs> so we have a wonderful relationship, but we, we parted ways. Um, yeah. And I just pursued LinkedIn for sales and business development solely. And that's where I am today. Well, that's fantastic. And you spend a lot of time, I've read a lot of your stuff, and you talk about the dramatic I mean, the earth shattering shift that has occurred in the sales process, the sales process is dramatically different than how it was just 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. Talk about that a little bit. Well, so I, you know, I've been in sales really, if you count, you know, my upselling at Friendly's ice cream when I was in <laughs> high school forever for my whole life, I've been in some kind of sales. Um, but really my first professional sales job was with Dun & Bradstreet. And the only way that they could get information about the company, about our solutions, was to have a conversation with a salesperson. There was no way to Google information. You had to call someone to even get someone to mail you something. Yeah. So the interaction you know, with the salesperson was really very early on in the sales process. Yeah. Today, 50, according to Challenger Sales, CEB, 57% of the buying decision is made before the seller and the buyer even have their first conversation. 
Right. But 57%, right? So that's a huge shift in the buying journey. Yeah, they're, they're halfway down the, well, actually the three quarters of the way down the funnel, 60%. I mean, well, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's a significant, right? It's significant. So somebody is influencing that 57%. Right. Um, somebody out there, maybe it's a couple of people, but the key to social selling, a, a, I should say a wedge of social selling is making sure that your content is part of what is influencing that 57%. Right. That your insights, uh, you know, all the stats show the one who gives the most insights and help typically is the one that wins the deal. Yeah. So, so it's important that we're not just branding ourselves as thought leaders and subject matter experts, but that we are consistently offering insights and bits of education that moves them toward your solution. So it's not just, hey, there, here's a whole bunch of noise that I'm putting out there. Right. But it's what you're putting out there, getting them closer and closer to working with you and your solution. And, and, and so we've attracted them, we're teaching them, and now we're engaging them and drawing them in. Attract, teach, and engage. That, that's kind of your, your three-prong process? That's my shtick. Yeah. I, I, there, are, there are many sub-prongs to all the pillars and prongs out there that, you know, it's hard to just 